Outliers in Education is brought to you by CEE, the Center for Educational Effectiveness. Better data, better decisions, better schools. To find out more, visit effectiveness.org. The degree to which teachers believe they can help their students has a real impact on their actual ability to do so. It's a little concept we've come to know as teacher efficacy. And we believe you're going to be fascinated to learn just how much a little belief can do right here on Outliers in Education. That's what we're all about in letting our kids be successful. If you want to achieve something, then surround yourself with the people you want to become. Because kids are kids in small districts, rural districts, urban, kids are kids. Hey folks, and welcome to the latest episode of Outliers in Education, coming to you from CEE, the Center for Educational Effectiveness. Every episode, we explore best practices with some of the best practitioners in education, and this episode is no different. Today, we're diving into the exciting and mystical world of teacher efficacy. It's exciting because in theory, it means that the simple act of believing that students can learn when you teach can make you a better teacher or even make your school better as a whole. But as you might expect, it's never just that simple. Here to help me tease out some of those angles is my compadre in podcasting and the second Eric on the show, Mr. Eric Bowles. Bowles, a quick question for you to begin with. Were you an efficacious teacher? Is clueless a synonym, E.T.? <laughs> um, so, yeah, in a word, no, not, not when I started. And I think any teacher worth their salt would say exactly that. Um, I think I became an efficacious teacher once... Uh, some of what I perceived as deficits in my students, and I would look at that differently now too that I know better, um, really caused me to start to pursue some curiosity around how could I help them learn better. I became a much better teacher when I became a collectively efficacious teacher, learning from the great Tim Bisson, uh, my teacher next door, who chose to collaborate with me and my lessons were better because his lessons were inherently better than my lessons. My management was better because his management was inherently better than my lessons. So that was my journey as a classroom teacher in a nutshell. Once I became collectively efficacious and uh, dropped my ego and was willing to learn from those in my midst who were true masters, I finally became a decent enough teacher, I think. You know, it, it, that is kind of a, a big theme, I think, here in Outliers, is it just takes some time and practice, and we're going to make some mistakes, and then we finally kind of hit on a, a few things. And one of our few things that has been uh, super successful is our guest today with us, and that's Heather Fowler. Heather is coming to us from, uh, actually, she came in late to education. She got into some market research and actually the other Washington and now kind of got into uh, some middle school, taught some high school, did some district assessment coordinating. Heather, I can uh, kind of uh, commiserate with you there. Uh, she became a principal's online then high school and now she is the senior director of education in the Evergreen school system. Heather, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you here. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Uh, okay, so what we're going to start with is just some of our viewers and listeners. I hope they're not watching uh, the podcast. But uh, we are going to just start with a, a, a quick example of a definition. I, the term teacher efficacy was coined about 20 years ago. And, uh, and now I'm going to paraphrase from Principal Magazine of 2008. Uh, they d define teacher efficacy as teachers' confidence in their ability to promote students' learning. So, uh, Heather, with that in mind, just let me ask you this. 
reflecting on your own experience, kind of what what is teacher efficacy and what has been your experience that way? Well, I think, you know, I think about my own personal journey toward being, you know, with teacher efficacy in in the classroom and and kind of going back to Eric where it was like, you know, when I started out, I'd like to think I was great, but I, you don't know what you don't know. And you continue to do things until um, you start realizing there are different ways of doing them. And that notion of really believing that every single student can learn in my classroom and it it's up to me to, to make that happen. And that I believe that my abilities are at the level where that can happen. Now that doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? There was, there's collaboration and reaching out and right. Going to find people who are good at the things you're not good at helping, you know, giving them to come help you and, and give you feedback in that coaching cycle and things of that nature. And so for me, that was a, a real big part of my teaching is when I realized that, um, you know, it's not in a vacuum. You can't do it alone. And so then when I became a principal, that then went on a much larger level, right, where I have to then think about an entire school of students, an entire staff, teachers are classified. Every single person, when I think of efficacy, is really about the whole building as well. So when you get to that building piece, so I, uh, I and I think I, we all experience that as educators that kind of try it and come back and, you know, shape our, our craft. But when you went to the administrative leadership level, how did that change? What were some of your perspectives there and experiences? You know, I think one of the things as I got into it and, and have, after doing like my um, my administrative credentials and my doctoral studies and not really having learned about efficacy until later into my administrative experience, I, I think I, I spent time when I started thinking that as the leader, I had to do the work and I had to put everybody on my shoulders and move it forward. And what I really needed to do, which I learned, you know, as I sort of settled in and kind of took a a better lay of the land was I had to go find out from every teacher, first of all, do you feel like every student can learn? Because if every student can't learn, regardless of whatever those um, factors are outside of our control, if if a student, if you don't think that that's the case, then, then we have a efficacy issue right there. Because without that, we can't do a collective the collective teacher efficacy. And so that was where I started is going from teacher to teacher and using that evaluation process really of having conversations and collecting data and, and talking and, and coaching and listening and, you know, you know, sometimes pressing on things that I saw, uh, which would help me figure out where people were. Cause then I could take that and say, okay, this is where everybody is. This is how we can get to a place we need to be to really move the needle on student learning. And your big question was really, do you believe that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, because my teachers, you know, the people that I worked for all loved kids. They they cared very, very deeply for our students and they would have done anything for them. But I think that there was a time uh, when I came into the school that I um, I started as the principal at was that there wasn't a high level of expectation. And so I think teacher efficacy was waning because people didn't feel like I could have high expectations and I can support kids to do the hard things that maybe they didn't want to do or they didn't think they could do. And so having to really pinpoint that to say, okay, this is where we're heading. This is what matters to you. Now let's take that and and make some changes that we can start seeing in the classroom with our students. So what happens when a teacher says, well, no, Heather, frankly, I don't believe that all kids can learn. You know, that then becomes a conversation. And sometimes it's a hard conversation. It's hard conversations we have to have as principals is to, to, to get to what that belief is. Is it because they have an experience with students that has led them to that place? Or is it something that they just, this is, you know, this is a paradigm that they are not willing to shift. 
And if, if it's a paradigm that people aren't willing to shift, then it's really about finding um, that conversation to maybe talk to us to a teacher and say, you know, maybe this isn't the right place for you. Maybe let's find some place where the, that you would be better suited because maybe there is some place that would work better for them. Uh, because if we don't have the whole, then uh, we can't get everybody moving in that same direction. We can't make the the movement that we need because it takes everybody. And it's really not, it's got to be more than the belief. And so some people can pay lip service and say, no, I believe every student can learn. But when you start looking at data and you start looking at grades and you start looking at discipline and you start looking at these things and you can put data in front of somebody and say, well, this is what I'm seeing. This is what the data is indicating. Let's talk about that. Uh, because sometimes it's really them not seeing it in its totality. And when they can see that data, that speaks to them because they say, that's not who I am. So how do I change that? And so that's where you can then be like, great, let's start figuring what that is to support you and um, help you and, and move you into that place where you want to be. Because most teachers I, I work with do want that very, I think maybe I've had one or two in my career that, that aren't. So in general, they do. So, so if, if a teacher, let's just kind of flush this out a little bit. Mm -hmm. If a teacher doesn't think like, let's say I'm teaching high school history and, and, uh, and I'm just like, you know what I, I get, you know, I get 150 kids that come through and, and I've done this for 20 years. Um, if I have that kind of a demeanor or belief, um, then that will actually have a difference on whether kids will be able to learn. Is that your perspective? Uh, yeah, because, you know, st students can feel when a teacher doesn't think that they are, um, that their abilities aren't up to muster in a classroom. And so, right, students can feel that and they sense that and then they shut that off versus a teacher who comes in who is like, listen, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to make it happen. I'm going to help you. Whatever it takes, I'm going to get you there, right? Whether it's algebra or history. Yeah. And they just keep persevering. Like, I don't care. I'm, I'm going to keep getting to the place. Where, okay. I, yeah, I get you. Yeah. And okay. or finding people who can, right? Because sometimes it's, you know, students are like, maybe I just don't gel with you, but I know that there's this other teacher you do. So let's get this person involved and let's see how we can make this happen. Okay. All right. So kind of a grit in uh, the teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so help me, uh, we were having a little bit of a discussion about this previously. There's teacher efficacy and then there's collective teacher efficacy. What, what's the delineation between the two? Well, so that notion, like, so if I have, if I have teacher efficacy, I believe what I do in my classroom makes a difference to every single one of my students that I see every day. I build those relationships. I build trust. And I know through doing that, I can help this student learn. And then when it comes to that notion of collective efficacy, it's that idea that as a group, all of us together can move the whole school forward. Um, but, you know, the one thing that I always talk about with teachers is, is that we have to believe these things and we have to take what we do in individual classrooms and bring it to the whole. But we can't just believe it. We also have to be doing things like measuring it, checking it, reflecting on it and, and really seeing does what we believe in and what we think we're working on actually work? Because it's not enough to believe if we don't go back and check and look to see what is, is anything actually happening. And so that's a really big part of it. So with my um, building, what we did as a staff is like, we've been working on, before I took my new uh, job, we were working on um, equitable grading practices. And COVID, while you know, it threw a lot of curveballs to everybody, was a great way to start digging in to think about the equitable practices we have in our classrooms, because there's a lot of data now that we can show about what students were failing or getting incompletes 
versus students who are doing well. And when you can start looking at what those students, who those students are, then people are like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize most of my students who were failing receive special education services, right? Now I can look and say, okay, now as a group, what are we going to do about that? And then make those plans and move it forward. So uh, because I'm old, now I'm going to kind of reference. It sort of sounds like Ronald Reagan's trust but verify using data yes, to do mm -hmm. that. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Because when we say, yeah, we're doing all this work, if you can't point at it and say our F rates have lowered and it's not enough to say our F rates have lowered. What has to also increase is the learning, right? So you have to have those multiple points of data to start triangulating that success. And one of the things we had started planning and moving into was student as assessment partner, right? Really thinking about how do we track those success rates for our students? What are their goals? Um, you know, using interim assessment blocks through the Smarter Balance, using our um, common writing assessments, things of that nature. So we can start saying, right, this student is doing well, but then they're also doing well in the learning as opposed to playing student and figuring out how to, you know, get a good grade for however that works. But when we thought about equitable grading practices, that also takes away some of that biased grading that occurred in classrooms where kids would get A's because they brought, you know, Kleenex or stayed after to right, right. Yeah, clean exactly. the chalkboard, which, which no one does anymore. Yeah. But right. So now we're like, it's about the learning, but that's hard because it's, it's hard because we have to change where teachers perspectives come from, that we're not the sage on the stage, that we are um, advocates for students and we are helping and learning with them and alongside them. And do you use that data to kind of cut through some of those biases and those beliefs sometimes? Yes. Yes. Yeah, okay. Because when you show teachers that they sometimes are taken aback because they just didn't know, right? Cause you see this big picture. And when you start seeing as a whole group across the school, who are the students with, you know, the F's or the incomplete or the no credits or the D's, that's when that starts to really come up because they do believe every student can learn but that's not what the data is showing. We're not doing the thing that we say we are. And it's to no fault, right? It's not because they're trying to do anything. It's just because we're not highlighting it. And then when we do, right, you should shine that light. Sunlight's the best disinfectant. And so let's start figuring out and how to help those kids move forward and do our jobs to help them with that. So Heather, you've shared a lot about how you use data to, to make that uh, transformation, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in, in terms of teacher practice. Um, can you share a story of a, of a light bulb that came on for a teacher or maybe even better yet, uh, how you kind of moved a whole building along in the, in the sense of teacher collective efficacy? Can you, can you think about a time where you went home and you're like, gosh, a lot of days I don't turn a corner, but we turned a corner here. There's been a couple because when I started at uh, Legacy, our graduation rate was 7%. And we had the most, you know, a large percentage of marginalized and underserved students in uh, the district. And so we had students coming to us that we were essentially um, not doing what we needed to do to help them be successful. So when I came on board, we did a data carousel first thing in August, right? We looked at graduation rates. We looked at the um, disproportionality of our discipline. We looked at all of those things. And then we started looking at the subgroups. And then just what do you notice? What do you see? And that really turned the light bulb on for people like, wait, what, a, you know, we thought we were doing this great work helping kids, but we weren't doing the thing we needed to push them and help them to graduate, to become, you know, college and career ready. To, so when they left us, they could go do something that would provide them a way to have a family or to live the life that they wanted. That is one. And then, like I said, in COVID, it really did provide us an opportunity to really look to see how 
you know, the inequalities of education were exacerbated by COVID and remote learning and helped us look at that in a different way. And that was another moment where people really had that aha moment because like data doesn't have a feeling. And so I would send that information out and I would always say, data has no opinion. It has no emotions. That's on us. So we just have to look at it objectively and say, all right, now let's use it to do something differently. And that was, that was a, a, a really that light bulb moment where people thought we've got to start thinking about how we grade. And that wasn't me that pushed that out there. That was something I really wanted us to work on. But I also know that it's got to be the, the group, the collective efficacy of the group to say, we got to do something about this. We got to figure out how to change this and make it better for our students. And then you go, great. What can I do to help you? Now let's do that. So, so Heather, when you talk about legacy, is that an alternative uh, school setting? Yeah, it's a school of choice. It uh, in Evergreen Public Schools, it's a nine through twelve high school. It had always been referred to as the alternative school, but it is not an alternative placement in the sense of like students get sent there. So students apply and they are enrolled and and they get to choose to come there. But it's standard been students who just were either pushed out or walked out of their neighborhood high school. So so I'm sure that as you kind of started some of these uh, initiatives. Um, to kind of improve some pieces, you might have had a little bit of pushback. You, you have mm-hmm. any kind of stories from some of that pushback at all? Yes, they're one of my favorite stories, and it's it's sad in a way, and it's also just indicative of what um, my associate principal Dave Shop and I walked into when we came in, which was, um, you know, we started making changes, and and change is hard when when adults feel comfortable and things work really well for them, and they may not work really well for students, or they do work well for students because expectations may not be as high as we want them, and so um, we had been made, making changes, and there were some teachers that were unhappy, and they would talk to students about it and tell them how terrible these things were, and we were making it a, just like every other high school and all of this, and a student walked up to my door and, and she said to me you know, I've been at this school for five years and you're ruining it. And I just, <laughs> and I just sat there because I was like, I don't know if I want to just ruin her moment in the sun of coming to the principal and just really giving it to me by saying, that's the problem. You've been here five <laughs> years. The goal is four years, not yeah, five. Right. You had a super senior talk. Yeah. And so I just said, you know, I appreciate that. And then I took that as this moment to talk, you know, say like, tell me more about that. Why do you think that? What is it? And then to then say to her, you know, what do you think our job is as a school? Is it to prepare you for life after school? Is it to keep you here until we think you're ready? Right. And so it, it really then became this opportunity to talk to her, but it just was this moment where I was like, Okay. All right. We're just going to let that sink in for a minute and see if she realizes the irony behind that statement. But right. Yeah. And she thought she thought you were ruining her life and her school because you were making these changes. Right. right? Yep. Having high accountability and really saying we're going to learn. We're going to make you take algebra and and geometry and things maybe you don't want to take and um, and help you to do that and be successful at it. Yeah. It was a great, it was just one of those moments where you're just like, really? Did, am I being punked here? There's no way this is happening. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't just the kids that had a, a bit of resistance. Did you meet any resistance mm-hmm. from staff at all? And any, any kind of stories there in that world? Yeah, you know, um, a lot of the staff were resistant at first and it wasn't because they didn't think that we could do better. I think, again, it becomes when we have built a school around what the adults want and what's good for us, like what we like to teach or what we want to do in that classroom. Um, And so it was a lot of conversations, again, using that evaluation process to say, this is what I'm noticing. This is where we are. This is where we need to be. What can I do to help you get there? Or, you know, this is what I'm seeing. And um, 
you know, there was one teacher who really struggled with that because they saw themselves as this great teacher and, and who was just really championing for kids. But just, it was really about this notion of, and they had said to me in a couple of occasions, like, these kids aren't ready to graduate yet. And I said, well, but we're not the parents, right? That's not our decision. We don't get to make that choice. As teachers. Right. As a teacher, yeah. I don't get to decide if you're ready or not, right? Emotionally, right. Yeah. you know, whatever that is. And, right. um, you know, and that was a teacher I ended up just having that conversation after two years saying, you know, I don't know if this is the place that you will be happiest. I think you are going to be unhappy here with these changes. So what can I do to help you? And, and they went and, and they found a job at a different school in a different district. And I think we're happier because they were able to kind of do the thing that they wanted to do. And I don't want people to be unhappy because when you're unhappy, students are unhappy. Right. right exactly. So. Yeah. So EP alluded to our age. Uh, we're, we're almost exactly the same age. Uh, so we worked an entire career when we got started. I don't even know the term PLC or PLT or collective right. teacher efficacy. I mean, that stuff wasn't even on the radar. Um, now it is, and we know teachers come from a long culture of isolation, especially in the American West, where we started the frontier school, and it wasn't all that long ago. Um, so tell us a story about a time when you dealt with a teacher, I would say a proficient, maybe even an outstanding teacher who said, yeah, that stuff's great, Heather, but I just kind of shut my door and do my own thing here. How, have you had that occur, and how did you address it? You know, um... Maybe on a, a really low level, but once we started talking about what people really believed in and why they got into teaching, that's what created that groundswell of thinking about we need to be collaborating, we need to be working together and collecting data and looking at data. Um, you know, that notion of the autonomy, I think, has been a problem for teachers forever, right? I know that the, the one-room schoolhouse, right? I'm going to shut my door. I'm going to do my thing. But when we become responsible to each other for data and we come back and, you know, once a month we're in a staff meeting and we are showing the data from our classroom and from our own assessments in our classroom, then that creates the responsibility to the whole. Because if you're not doing it, then your colleagues see that. And then they are maybe questioning why are you not doing the thing that we're all doing when we're all agreeing to do this? And sometimes that's a little peer pressure, right? But that's good because, you know, me just saying to somebody to do this doesn't work. And I think that's, you know, one of the great leadership lessons is I can't make you do things you don't want to do. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and how do I find that way to get you to do something like that? Yeah. You know? So uh, I hear you. I, I love this idea that data doesn't have any feelings. Like, I, I love that idea. Um, and now we're going to get into a little bit of a function. So let's say that I'm a, a newbie administrator and I really want to make a difference uh, in my school and I want that collective teacher efficacy. What kinds of uh, pieces and nuggets of advice would you give me if you're like, okay, here's the things you need to do? I, everything I always think comes back to data because as the leader, right, you have opinions about things. Like I came in and I had opinions about the graduation rate and why the graduation rate was the way it was and grades and things like that. But my opinion doesn't matter because you can disagree with it for your own reasons. But when we put the data out there and here are the hard numbers and here are the things it's hard to disagree when we look at discipline disproportionality or the lower number of, um, you know, of students of color in higher level classes or whatever that looks like. It's hard to say, no, we're doing these things when you can look at it and go, but we're not. Right. And then it's just it's just the, there. the data is saying yeah, the data not. just indicates yeah. we are not doing that. And it's also great on an individual basis to say, uh, you know, when like a discipline disproportionality is one that's really close to my heart is to say, you know, I sat in a classroom and I watched it over five different evaluations, like 
each time two students were sent out of the room. And each time those two students were students um, of color or they were students who received special services. So what do you, what do we, what do we see here? Tell me what you think about that. And then they go, oh, I didn't notice that. Then you can have that conversation. It helps, it helps open the door because then it's not about me making a judgment. And so I think for any new administrator, really use that process of the evaluation and then data as a whole. Data carousels are amazing because you can look at lots of data, get lots of information. Um, the other great thing is, is that learning focused evaluation uh, is a training I had taken a few years ago that really helped me because everything starts like I sit next to a teacher and right in front of us is the data and I point at it, right? It's just that really basic, here's what it is. Let's see what we're looking at. It takes away that because there is, you know, there's this intersectionality of evaluator and evaluators coach and uh, teacher who, and you want that teacher to be really open and honest and reflective, but you've got to be able to take away that feeling like you're my evaluator and I'm going to get a value, bad evaluation when I can say, here's that data. So, so do you use that data, Heather, just to kind of uh, almost alleviate that almost conflict that that teacher would feel about you and you almost use it as a third person? Um, yep. My conflict isn't with you. The issue is what this is. Is that kind of right. how you use it? Okay. Yeah. So you can say, this is what, this is the data. Let's look at this. Let's talk about this. What do you think? What do you see? And then you can write, go from like a coaching stance, or you maybe have to lead them to someplace because sometimes people are afraid to be honest and go, wow, I have a lot of F rates among um, our LGBTQ community in my school. That was a, a big one too. Wow, that's really crazy. Well, let's talk about why that might be. Or I exclude a lot of young African-American males from my class. Let's think about why that is. And then how can I help you with that? Then right. it's not, a, then it's like me being your partner in this learning and growth and then always being growth focused, always being growth focused. And then just really taking it slow, not trying to focus on too much. I think that's the bane of every new administrator. We have all these great ideas and we want to really get in there and make changes. And it's, it's like changing, you know, you, to turn around a, 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 a big ship is slow. It's a slow right. process and right. it's, we're not in a, you know, we're not in a tiny boat. It's right. slow. Just keep it Keep that focus, keep it going, and and always have that eye on the prize. So so I'm I'm just gonna encapsulate, then they won't hate you, they'll just hate the data, right? Oh no, they still hate <laughs> you for sure. No, hundred percent. Like listen, that was one of the things that I always learned is like and it's really good advice. If someone's not mad at you, you're probably not doing it right. But it's like having those relationships where they can say, I'm really mad. Why are we doing this? And be like, let's talk about it. Like that, that just let's have a real honest conversation. And, um, but that takes relationship building. You've got to let people know that they can trust you to come in and be like, this right. is stupid. I right. hate this. Right, and right. be like, all right, let's talk about it. And mm -hmm. then say, I hear that, but we're still doing it. <laughs> that, that's awesome. I've tried to use that line about if somebody's not mad, you're not doing it right with my mm -hmm. wife. And it hasn't worked mm. real well, Heather, but I'll keep trying on that she one. She just stays mad. It's all right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah then I'm doing a lot right. <laughs> Heather, this has been awesome. I appreciate your thinking. I, I know you've got a lot more to say, but I believe this has been an efficient and effective discussion on efficacy. So thank you very Collectively, much. Collectively, it's been yeah, very efficient. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> and so now I'm going to move to Mr. Senior Bowles over here. Bowles, one of your superpowers is this ability to encapsulate and recap. So what you're thinking here, my man? Well, I'm not a science guy, so my big takeaway was sunlight is the best disinfectant. And, <laughs> and now back to our regularly scheduled podcast. Um, so I'll know efficacy when I see it. <laughs> if, I, 
If I saw a quote tattooed on Heather's forehead, I think it would say, without data, you're just another person with an opinion. Mm -hmm. I also think that there was just a ton Heather mentioned that shows up in our outlier research that's, that's related to our survey construct. So I just do a ton of parallels. You know, data, especially when you come in uh, to a school, you have the opportunity to set a baseline. Uh, it's not your baseline. It's just, it's just what is. You, you, you plow through that stuff neutrally. Data can be that catalytic change. And we know that in our outlier schools, um, oftentimes principals and teachers can point back to some sort of catalytic event. Um, loved what you said about uh, trust and verify. Um, relationships are huge. Take on what you can take on as an administrator and as a teacher. Education is a craft. You get better at education over time. Uh, you're not great initially as a teacher. And if you're great as a principal, if you survive your first year as a principal, you're, you're more lucky than you are good. Uh, so just keep working that craft, uh, relational trust. And then one thing that um, we heard, everything that Heather said was common sense. And our good friend Chuck Salina and his work with the Powerless to Powerful Framework uh, mentions right up front, so much of what we need to do in education is common sense, sounds like common sense. It's just not common practice. So, so much congruency with what we've heard before. Um, Heather, so much more eloquent than the podcast host. Just just did a wonderful job. <laughs> and uh, my- That's a low bar. Low bar. And better Absolutely looking. Right. And- <laughs> uh, but but we, help, we help our guests meet it every time. But you- you, you flew over the top of the bar. Um, so we're going to go ahead and call you Dick Fosbury. It's a regional reference. And uh, there we that's go. all I got. That's all I got. Fosbury flopped it. Oh, thank you, Bulls. Maybe I'm taking that away as your superpower. <laughs> but we'd like to thank our efficacious guest, Heather Fowler. Heather, thank you again for being here. It was fun. I love this. And thank you for being a, a listener on Outliers in Education as we continue our mission to bring you remarkable stories from remarkable educators. You can find this episode more online at effectiveness.org. Until next time, teach your children well. We know you can. This has been Outliers in Education. <laughs> if you'd like to find out how to gather the data you need to help drive positive change in your school or district, take a moment to visit CEE, the Center for Educational Effectiveness, at effectiveness.org. Better data, better decisions, better schools effectiveness.org.